0: is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today, Yulia Denisuk, was overworked and unfulfilled at her well-paid job as a brand manager when she took a trip to Morocco, a place she'd always fantasized about visiting. It was an eye-opening experience from start to finish and one that would set her on the path to a whole new life. One starlit night in the desert, Yulia made the decision that she would leave her cushy job and pursue her dream of becoming a travel journalist. The rest, as they say, is history. Eight years later, Julia's work has been published in The New York Times, National Geographic, Condé Nast Traveller, and many, many more. She is also the founder of Nomad & Jewels, a small group travel company offering trips to the Middle East, and Travel Media Lab, a platform and podcast helping aspiring travel writers get their big break. Join us as we discuss common misconceptions about Morocco, how to delve deeper and really get to know a place, and the power of looking for signs when you need confirmation you're on the right track. If you're harboring a dream, but it never quite feels like the right time to make the leap and go for it, this episode is for you. Julia, welcome. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today and hearing all about this trip to Morocco. Mitsu Esmi, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So I normally like to start by asking people, where did your love of travel originate?
1: For me, it started really in in my childhood, because I was born in Kazakhstan, and I moved to Estonia at the ripe age of three uh, years old, but the rest of our family stayed in, in Kazakhstan, and so for a while, I was going back and forth between Estonia and Kazakhstan. And my first solo trip actually happened when I was five years old. My mom put me on a plane. In Tallinn and uh, in Tallinn or in Moscow, I don't remember even now. Uh, And then I landed in Almaty, which is in Kazakhstan. So ever since that age, I've been sort of shuffling countries, shuffling places. And, uh, you know, that's how it
0: started. That is a fascinating family history. (laughs) And I know when I was on your podcast, The Travel Media Lab, we were discussing how many travel journalists, including you, have whole other careers before they start pursuing their dream job. So what were you doing? before this trip to Morocco? Yes,
1: yeah, so I guess I followed a path that many immigrants would follow. You know, there was always this pressure to succeed, to get a good job, a good education. And I think for a lot of us, pursuing something outside, something very standard, what that looks like is, is wrought with a lot of... You know, pressures from our families and from ourselves, too, because our parents, uh, in a lot of cases, they came here, they sacrificed so much. And now we have to kind of make up for that or make it worth it, you know. So for me, I followed that path, that that more traditional path. Ever since I came to the States at the age of 16, I, uh, you know, had a lot of different careers, but eventually went to business school, got an MBA. And started working in corporate America, which by by all means is you know one very close to that definition of traditional success. I was a brand manager, I was uh, responsible for profit and loss statement for brands, and for those of you who know what that is, that is a lot of pressure that is a lot of hours you know we worked eighty ninety hours a week easily, of course, I was also getting paid very well. it was the highest ever salary in all of my family going I don't know how many generations you know so it was all that kind of situation where I really made it uh, by all intents and purposes but
0: deep down inside I was very unhappy in that job. Did you always know that you wanted to be a travel journalist or was that something that came later? I always
1: knew that I wanted to travel more. And I always knew that I wanted to tell stories. You know, I started writing fiction stories when I was eight years old, I think, in this little notebook. And um, I started taking photos when I was 10. So that, you know, that was always present in my life. And travel continued being present in my life. But honestly, I didn't really see... I, don't, I didn't see anybody around me who would be doing, you know, this job. It, uh, I didn't really see that many models. Of course, I was aware of magazines. I was aware of National Geographic, like many of us probably, you know, flipped through uh, the editions, all the editions of National Geographic. I was always inspired by that. But it felt so unattainable, honestly, because around me, all I saw were people doing normal jobs and pursuing normal careers, you know. So until that point, it really didn't have hasn't occurred to me that I could pursue something like
0: this myself. So you were you were definitely unhappy. Were you trying to convince yourself that everything was fine and you should stay in this job and continue on do the sensible thing? 100%. 100%.
1: 100% 100%. I mean, you know that internal conversation that you have with yourself every morning when you're getting getting up for work and getting ready for work. That negotiation that you're having with yourself trying to convince yourself that this is normal, this is, you know, this is what everybody's dealing with. But increasingly what I found is that I I kept having this feeling that this is not my life. Like I'm living someone else's life. I I'm living in Manhattan I'm renting this incredible apartment on the Upper West Side, you know, I have this incredible salary, I have this very, very prestigious job, and all I'm doing is sitting behind PowerPoint and Excel and endless meetings all day, you know, people in corporate environments will understand that or resonate with that, you know, just an endless barrage of emails, of presentations to upper leadership and or the politics that come with that as well it just felt like i was living this double life you know one life i was really working or trying so hard to succeed in this corporate world and climb the ladder and do all the things i'm supposed to do but when i came home at night after work i felt deeply unsatisfied and i was questioning this
0: this path that i was on and so Tell me about how the idea for the trip to Morocco came about and why did you pick Morocco? Why was that really calling to you at that time?
1: So this is a really interesting conversation that we can definitely get into. I was fascinated by Morocco for a long time. I don't even remember, to be honest, where I first learned about the country of Morocco, but in my mind i now recognize after doing the work of travel journalism for a while that i have had a very romanticized and yes this idea of the country that was very rooted actually in orientalism if you know what i mean it's very exotic it's very foreign totally a victim of that kind of stereotype really not only morocco right many countries around the world are subject to But that was the idea that I had in my mind. And that's kind of what I was hoping to see when I, when I would come to Morocco. And yeah, it's an interesting conversation because now, of course, I recognize that I was subject to that stare. And, you know, I I was expecting and looking for something in the country that actually didn't exist there or existed only in the touristic uh, pockets of the place where people were actually playing on those because that's what tourists are expecting you know but the real country is very very different and of course has many
0: layers much complexity which i learned all about on that trip And um, so walk us through your itinerary as well where were you hoping to go in the country
1: So I was really fascinated by the idea of the mountains, you know. I love the mountains in general, so uh, I wanted to see the Atlas Mountains and I wanted to see the Rift Mountains in the north of the country as well. And I think I was really swayed by, again, those kind of exotic description of what Morocco is, you know, wading through the medinas of Marrakesh and of Fez or seeing the the countryside and seeing the mountains and i i even remember i i wrote a blog post about wanting to go to morocco and i was really playing on all those stereotypes i remember talking about the bands who were who are playing in the streets the snakes Char- definitely mentioned snake charmers a couple of times. My trip, uh, as I started planning it, it took me to all, all throughout the country. So we started in the north uh, of the country, in Chefchaouen, of course, because, you know, everybody wants to go to Chefchaouen. It's such an interesting uh, city. We made our way down to Fez and to uh,
0: Marrakech,
1: and we went and saw the deserts and Casablanca and a few other places as well.
0: I think I went to Morocco in 2005 with some friends from a school and it was amazing. We had no money, so we were staying in not fancy places at all. But it is one of those places that just feels very atmospheric. Mm. And there's so much to see there. I don't know, even like the the sound of the course of prayer, the smells, like it's very sensory. Can you try and set the scene for us for anyone who hasn't been before?
1: Yes. So that's what struck me. I remember when I first came to Marrakesh. That's what really struck me. The pink walls of the city, especially at sunsets when the sun, the very hot North African sun starts to set, you know, the light is perfectly golden and pink and it reflects on those pink walls and it makes them even more pink. And then you see the Atlas Mountains in the, in the distance and they are becoming pink as well. And then the call to prayer starts from all around you and the pigeon the flocks of pigeons are flying and the palm trees are swaying and the air is balmy and there's sort of this you know uh, chatter on the streets everywhere there is this energy it's it's energetic the city but it's also calm somehow you know it's an interesting combination of that and it has this chic that people from all over the world have been looking for, you know, they've been coming to Morocco for a long time, especially Marrakesh, hoping to become part of that she spirit, I guess, of the city. But I, I remember just being so enamored by the, all the visual uh, vibrancy and colors of the city. It was so wonderful.
0: It also is one of those places where it feels like so much is happening behind closed doors. You know how you'll go down like a really nondescript alleyway and there's just like a plain door. But if you go through the door, there's like an incredible riad with a fountain in the middle and like people drinking mint tea. And it just feels like it's full of life, but there are so many nooks and crannies to explore and so much that you can't see that's happening, but you feel the energy of it.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Or Or hidden gardens and hidden cafes and So many different places. Yes, I I agree. Uh, Donkeys crossing the streets. You know, motorcycles, fresh bread. I remember. Oh my god! One of one of the things that me and my friend, because it was me and my friend that went on that trip. I remember we found this snack called Malawi. If I remember correctly, it's called Malawi. It's this bread that they prepare just in front of you. You know, they put it on a grill and it's fresh, and it's hot, and it's like stretches. And then they put some fresh honey on it. And then you just devour it right there on the street. And I remember we ate so much of that Malawi snack that was present throughout all of our days there. And it was just fabulous, absolutely
0: fabulous. Yeah, that sounds so delicious. (laughs) And I know that you also hired a guide to take you into the desert. And I'm curious to know if you usually hire guides, because it's something I think I'm more open to doing the older I get, because when I was younger, I think I would preferred to just find my own way and set my own agenda. But now I realize that if you want to get to know a place in a deeper way, having somebody with you who really can tell you like the history and the culture and explain all the little things helps you have mm-hmm. so much more of a rich experience than you would have had just making your own way.
1: Absolutely. I think for me, it really depends on where I go. You know, because there are some places where navigating it by yourself is really not a challenge. You know, you can do it like, for example, Paris. Although you could you could make an argument that even in Paris, if you have a guide with you for a day, you will see Paris from a very different perspective than if you were to explore it on your own. Right. But then there are some places where I really think you need some of that guidance because you wouldn't even necessarily know where to go or what to do or how to go about certain places, you know. I'm not sure how the situation is now. In Morocco, last time I was there was 2019, but, you know, you could argue. I I know, for example, in Jordan, which is a place I know very well. By this point, I traveled there so many times. That now is starting to be the case that you can rent a car in Jordan and kind of go around on your own. The infrastructure is starting to pick up. Uh, there is more awareness about different places where you can go and where, for example, you could stay for the night. You know, now in Jordan, everybody knows, for example, Feinan Eco Lodge. It's been mentioned on National Geographic many times. Like it's, you know, it it has certain awareness among travelers. 10 years ago, nobody knew where to stay when you go to that part of the country, for example. So you needed you needed a guide for sure. Um, I think Morocco is kind of in between right now because there are, of course, so many places like Marrakesh, like Fez, where you can just go ahead and book your own accommodations and do your own thing. But then if you venture outside of the cities and if you want to go into the desert or you go, you want to go maybe into the mountains do some trekking and stuff, then I think having somebody who understands that region and who is from the region is just so enriching and so helpful for sure
0: I agree I think a place like that for me is Cuba I feel like Cuba you need a guide to help you first of all navigate all the different ways that things work or don't work there because a lot of the time they don't and things break and things are slow but just to help you like have an appreciation for the simple things you know like even I'll be eating a meal and be like, oh, this is like fine. It's, you know, rice, beans, veggies, plantains, whatever. And then, you know, my guide will explain that Cuba actually has, they're they're like leaders in small scale organic agriculture and like the history behind that. And I'm like, oh, like I didn't, that was something I never would have known. It just helps you to understand like, it's very like when you're on your own, it's quite surface level and you can read books and stuff, but having someone there who is from that place and Mm. can tell you all these small details about, the little everyday things really makes a difference
1: it makes the place come alive really when when you have that perspective of somebody who's from there i mean i think for me in general what makes travel powerful for me is the people mm-hmm. the people that i meet you know i i'm very fortunate to have met so many wonderful people almost everywhere i go who have become my friends who are from that place you know and they just give you such a different perspective on it than than what you have yourself so yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's really important, I think. Even if you're not getting a guide, just to stretch yourself and to try to meet people from the place that you're visiting.
0: That was going to be in my next question. Do you have any other tips for like digging beneath the surface of a place? I think one of mine is that I like to ask taxi drivers. <laughs> or uber drivers like where do they go what do they think is cool because normally you have that period of time where they're driving you somewhere and they're just like talking you're just making chit chat with each other and they'll often provide really amazing insights that you would not have discovered on your own um, but yeah do you have anything like that where you're like this is a good way to get to know somewhere better
1: i also try to look at local media
0: so you
1: know i I definitely like when, if i go somewhere new I would read, you know, what Condé Nast Traveler, let's say, has published, or what a far magazine has published on this place. But then I will also try and look at, you know, for example, Amman local newspaper and see what's happening in that local newspaper coverage and what are some events that are happening in the in the city or in the place that I go to. I definitely try to check out local events, maybe meetups, maybe there's concerts that are happening that, you know, travelers wouldn't necessarily go usually. I think it's it's such a wonderful way to get exposed to what's happening in the community when you're uh, looking for for those types of events so yeah I, I try to do that everywhere I go
0: that's very smart I never would have thought to do that <laughs> next time next trip I'll do that for sure so tell me about the experience in the desert so you had this guide and the plan was to spend the night out there in the Sahara
1: One thing I learned on that trip, actually, which is kind of funny to me, is that, you know, everybody who comes to Morocco or not everybody, but many people who come to Morocco, they, again, have a lot of these kind of preconceived notions of what this place is. And one of those preconceived notions is the Sahara, right? Everybody wants to go see the Sahara. Of course, Sahara is one of the most famous deserts on the planet. And that was me as well. You know, a big reason for why I booked the guide and went with them is because I wanted to see the Sahara. So, you know, and and they, by the way, advertise it as Sahara because, again, they want to meet the demand of the travelers. The travelers want to see the Sahara, so they advertise the Sahara. But in fact, it's a very big misconception because the dunes that people go to when they are in morocco they're not part of the sahara well sahara is part of some of morocco's territory but actually most of it is in algeria and and mali and some other places if you look on the map you will see it actually that yes there is sahara in morocco but the place that everybody goes to is called merzuga dunes and merzuga is a standalone dune that is not part
0: of sahara actually Get a little education there—a good piece of knowledge to have because I did not know that before.
1: I yeah, know nobody does, right? And and the funny thing is that that continues to be perpetuating because everything I read about Morocco, everybody talks about going to the Sahara in the desert, of course, you know, but it's not. It's really not. I learned that also from these guys, from my guide and and, and the driver. They explained this to me that it's not. Well, there is another element here that Sahara is desert in Arabic. So they refer to any desert as Sahara. But the big Sahara that we are thinking about, it's really not the dunes that everybody goes to when they book those trips out of Marrakech to go see the Sahara in Morocco. Yeah. I think it's good to
0: know those
1: little intricacies, you know?
0: (laughs) For sure. This is why you're a great travel journalist. Tell us what happened when you went to the dunes. Yes.
1: So Sahara or not, right? It's still absolutely worth it going to the dunes, which are called Merzuga. There is Merzuga, and then there's also another one called erkchebi They're uh, near each other. I mean, these are stunning dunes. They are some of the highest in the world. It's no wonder that everybody wants to go see them, because they're just absolutely breathtaking. They're huge, you know, distance-wise. They're quite big. And I remember, first of all, I remember driving out of the city. Ismail, guide, he picked us up. And we went on a day's drive, actually, you know, through some of the places to get to this hot, to, to the desert. And on the drive, what I've also learned is a lot of that history and those intricate layers of Morocco that I had no idea about. For example, I learned about the indigenous people of the country, which are called Amazigh. Now, the westernized name for them is Berbers. I also learned that Berber is a kind of a derogatory name because it comes from Roman times. It's a Latin word that is translates as barbaric. So it's the barbarics, you know, the Romans call them the barbarics, the Berbers. So they actually don't like that word. They don't like to use that word. That's uh, on that road trip. I learned that, you know, they call themselves Amazigh. This is the name of the people. And those these people are not just part of Morocco. They're also in Algeria. You know, there are many different kind of parts of Northern Africa where the Amazigh live. And there's actually a push for independence that's happening. Uh, So it's, you know, it's a very complex and layered history and presence you know maybe not necessarily the focus of today's conversation but just to say that i learned all of that on that road trip with ismail and, and the driver and my friend and it was just incredible and they played us the music you know the amazic music which turns out i already listened to some of this it was already on my playlist and but i had no idea that it was amazigh you know so it's kind of like you're uncovering all the, these layers and then I remember we are approaching the desert, you know, so we're driving. Imagine the, the, the windows are open in the car. The wind is in, you know, the Amazic music is playing. The guys are like clapping. We're clapping. We're like dancing. It's so carefree and beautiful. And then we spot the first dune and both of them, I observe them. I'm looking at them. Both of them are like, overcoming oh, we're coming home immediately like something changes in their expression and they're so excited to see the desert and they and they're saying we're coming home we're coming home and it was just so beautiful to see you know and we arrive at this uh, outpost where kind of you know we get situated uh, we get changed into camels a camel caravan because that's how you know if you if you choose to, to you you ride into the desert on the camel And that's what we do. And because we're a little bit late, the rest of the group that we're kind of attached to has already left. So it's really just me, my friends, and this young 18-year-old Amazic boy that are now slowly, slowly walking through the dunes and seeing the sun, you know, start kind of falling into the sand. And it's incredibly hot. I'm sitting on my camel and I just feel like I'm just in this very different world from everything I've ever knew. And you're slowly entering into that world, you know. And I like to say that the music, the Amazigh music, it has a very certain rhythm to it, you know. It's a very like, and and I actually realized then that the rhythm is kind of akin to like a camel walking, like, you know, like this. It's it's kind of like moving, but not going very fast, but in the, in a very certain slow rhythm. It's just such a... Beautiful memory. And even now, when I think about it, it's like I'm tra- transported into that place, you know. So again, Sahara or not, it's a very special environment and experience for sure.
0: So you said that you faced your fears that night in the desert. Tell us what happened. I
1: did. So it took about two hours to get into the camp where we were staying in the desert. And by that time, it was nightfall, you know, and of course, there is no lights, there is no nothing. There is a fire that they're kind of tending to and we're about to have our meal. And I remember climbing up to the top of the dune and seeing the first star, you know, a alight in the horizon. And I just had this feeling like, Julia, this is it. This is it. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Not that, not in New York, in Manhattan, in that crazy office. This, you know? And again, I had this kind of sinking feeling like, this is it, but I don't know how to get here or how practically what does that mean? I have no idea, you know? Because I was afraid. I was afraid to to leave my job. I was afraid to lose my salary. I was afraid what what would that mean for all the years that I went on this path? What what would that mean for my family? You know, all these things. I was also afraid of what if I turn out not to be great or not successful in this new endeavor? What is what if I'm a epic failure, you know? like all of those things. So I went up to the dune and I saw that first star and I kind of just stayed with that feeling. And then I went down and, you know, we had our meal. We we stayed by the fire. And by the time the dinner was over, I went back to the dune. And by that time, it wasn't just one star. It was this myriad of stars you know if you see that for the first time in your life you're like oh my god what are we doing wrong in the cities because every night this is available to us but we never see it because you know because of all the artificial lights and everything that we have in the cities but when you see it for the first time it's just such an incredible feeling i was really overtaken by awe in that moment you know and i remember just falling down on my knees it's gonna sound cheesy but really. I was just overtaken by how incredibly beautiful it was, you know, this carpet of stars just all over me. And I'm on this dune by myself in Morocco. It was so beautiful. And I fall down on my knees and I start crying and start crying. And suddenly I just feel this relief, you know, just so much relief. And as if somebody is telling me it's going to be okay. Yulia you're gonna be fine it's all gonna be fine and by the time I stand up I notice this boy his name is Mohammed the 18 year old he was actually sitting near and kind of just making sure I was okay you know quietly respectfully sitting to the side and as I stand up and I start walking down to the dune he tells me two words the only words that he said Throughout the whole night, he didn't have a lot of English and I didn't have a lot of Amazigh, so we couldn't really speak to each other. But that night, as I was walking down the dune, he told me, the night is young. The night is young. For me, I took it as a sign, honestly, because, of course, I don't know what he meant by that. And honestly, now that I think back to it, I'm not even sure if it was him who said it or some... Divine providence. Because now that I recall the story, it doesn't even make sense that, like, why would he say that? You know, but he did. I remember clearly hearing him say, "The night is young," and I interpreted it in so many different ways. But one of the ways I interpreted it was in that, Julia, you have so many years ahead of you. You can try whatever you want. The night is young. Go ahead and do what you want to do. You know, it was a breakthrough night. Really, it was a breakthrough moment that happens. I came back stateside, really something changed in me. Something very important changed in me. I no longer saw this job as the only answer or the only way or this career path as the only way to go forth in the world, you know? And about six months later, I was no longer a brand manager.
0: Wow. I got hairs, like the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up from that story. It's amazing. Have you heard of the sunk cost fallacy? Yes, that's what it's making me think of, because I think we do get this idea that the more time and energy and maybe finances we poured into something, the worse it feels to We're like, we can't quit that thing now. Otherwise, it would all be pointless. And it does feel as we get older, it can feel like I'm too old to to have a second chapter, you know, to have like the second act. But it's really not true. And it's amazing that, that you had that realization that night. And it was so profound that you came back and changed your whole life.
1: Absolutely. Yes, I I, I agree 100%. And I mean, so many chapters, right? The people who can continue reinventing themselves again and again and again throughout their age, I am always in awe of these people. And I think for me, they're such incredible, I don't know, role models, if that's the right word, but maybe beacons of hope and inspiration that you can do that because you're right, like we get so entrenched in whatever it is that we're doing and we feel like there is nothing there is no alternative anymore because i've i've been on this path for so long but it's it's just not true it's just really not true so you know this this boy Mohammed. thanks to him as well for for being so poetic like you said and <laughs> pointing that out you know
0: so then how did you make the leap to pursue travel journalism? What did that look like for you? Because as you said, you didn't know anyone in the industry. You know, you didn't have any particular role models. You're coming from a complete other world in corporate America. Where did you begin? Did you just start pitching things to publications? I didn't even
1: know that you're supposed to be pitching. Like I honestly didn't know what the whole process looked like I started by doing what probably a lot of people when they're starting out are doing. It's just like knocking on so many doors and pursuing so many crumbs of potential things, a lot of which don't even make sense in hindsight or, or don't work out. For example, one thing I started doing is I started, uh, well, I, I, I was actually already going to a TBEX conference, a t- travel blogging conference. I even went to it while I was still in corporate because, you know, that's kind of yearning was in me. So I I remember taking time off of my work and going to the conference and stuff. But I started going to more conferences like this and started to try to meet people who are in this industry and started reading a lot more magazines and going on their websites. The first ever pitch that I sent to was to National Geographic, Traveler Magazine. and. Uh, By that time, they were still, surprisingly, they were still accepting paper submissions. Oh, wow. Even though it was 2016, it wasn't that long ago. It was because that's when I really started pursuing this career path. So 2016, I remember going on their website and looking at, you know, how to pitch National Geographic, And they had this instruction that you send us a query with a cover letter and, and the pitch and, you know, address it to
0: this DC, whatever address. And I did that. I mean, it almost feels like that's a better way to stand out than just dropping an email because then, you know, someone actually has it in their hands and then they probably will definitely open it, whereas an email is easily missed.
1: Yes, actually, that's a good point. But I don't know, because I never heard back from anyone on that idea. And and now, you know, I I actually teach travel journalism now. And in one of my programs, I actually show people that original pitch.
0: And that's
1: I show them, them what didn't work. Because there's a lot of things that weren't working there. Because I didn't know how to pitch. I didn't know what works, what doesn't, you know. So all this to say that it took me years, really, to get established in the industry, to understand how it works, to develop contacts, to build relationships. Like, really, years of knocking on doors and people not responding to me. You know, so many, so many, I guess how they say, it, blood, sweat, and tears like that, you know. But, I think for me, the difference was that I was on the other side of it, right? I could probably turn around and call one of my corporate recruiters and say, "Hey, you know, find me another opportunity or something." I was on that side where I made good money, I was a prestigious brand manager at one of the world's sexiest brands and and companies, and I was so deeply unhappy with that, so for me, the alternative was... Well, there wasn't one because I was like, I'm not coming back to that world. I don't want that world. So I stuck it out, you know, as as much as I could. Even though I recognized that not everybody has that option, right? Just to stick it out. I had saved some money. I was living very frugally. I was traveling the first six months on this path, I went to travel and do all the things that I've always wanted to do, but always postponed until some later time. For example, I rented an apartment in Istanbul because I always wanted to have a flat in Istanbul. And I did that for a month and a half. I lived in Vietnam, I lived in Thailand. I ate I remember my my meals budget was a day in Vietnam one dollar for breakfast one dollar for lunch one dollar for dinner it was amazing it's amazing that you can do that well not anymore I don't know if you can yeah in 2016 you could definitely I could definitely eat on the streets for three dollars a day you know incredible so i did that for a while because again for me yeah i i did not want to come back to the corporate world so this was the the only 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 way forward for me but again i just want to acknowledge that not everybody has that so what i want to say to people if somebody's maybe thinking about that is it doesn't have to be all or nothing either you know you can start uh, i think the key for me is to find let's say you have a mortgage and you have some responsibilities that you can't get out of so what do you do the key for me is to find a job or an arrangement that doesn't get all of your juices out by the end of the week because then you still have something left to pursue something on the side for me that wasn't the case my job as a brand manager at this shall not be named corporation they wrung me dry I had nothing to give by the and I was working weekends and nights as well like there was no space for me to pursue anything else you know I was making top dollar but I was giving everything to them so in that situation I couldn't do anything on the side because there was nothing left of me So what I advise to people now is that you know you don't have to go like I did completely on the other side but find an, an arrangement where you have some of that space in your week where you can continue developing this if that's That's, your
0: situation. That's really good advice. And obviously it did pay off for you not having a plan B because Mm -hmm. your first ever story about that trip to Morocco was published in The Lonely Planet Travel Anthology. Incredible place for it to land. How did that commission come about?
1: You know, again, I don't remember where I saw it, maybe on Facebook somewhere. I just saw that Don George, who probably everybody in the industry now knows that name, right? The... The story, Don George, who is an editor, a longtime editor at Lonely Planet, he put out a call somewhere that, you know, I'm looking for submissions for our next travel anthology. And I wrote that story pretty soon after I came back from Morocco because I was just under such impression from Mm -hmm. at night and what happened, you know. So I had the story ready to go, kind of waiting for its moment. And when I saw that he's looking for submissions, I said, you know, this is my chance. So I sent it off. And weeks later, I got the email from him saying, congrats, you're in, you know, which was like such a sign, right? Like such a sign. Because at that point, when you're starting out, you are looking for those signs. You are grasping for those signs from the universe that could tell you, yes, keep going, keep going, you know, you, you can do this. So it was such an important sign for me that, oh my God, my submission just got accepted, you know.
0: I mean, it's crazy. Like, that's such a great accomplishment. And that must have been so, like, affirming for you. And as you mentioned, you now are very successful as a photographer and a writer. And you also teach aspiring writers, how to pitch their work and land in publications that they desperately want to write for. So could you tell us more about Travel Media Lab and the kinds of programs that you offer?
1: Absolutely. So it's interesting because that whole part of my work now has started during COVID because during COVID we were all grounded and I've always wanted to teach you know, people would ask me all the time how I do what I do. So I knew that people would be interested, but I I never had any time for it before COVID. And so I just said, you know, let me give it a try. And the first ever course that I ran, I immediately saw the magic in what was happening there. Because, yes, in some way, I'm sharing The foundational knowledge of the industry, of the travel industry, you know, how it works, how you work with editors, how you work with tourism boards, how do you pitch. But somehow, what I was actually giving people was hope and confidence and belief in themselves and belief that something different is possible. And that is so much more powerful than any kind of foundational, tactical knowledge, you know. And I saw that in our community because, you know, we um some some people gathering up for that and it was just so beautiful so by the time that first class was over people were upset that you know this is the ending now so and i was thriving and teaching that i i realized i'm actually a good teacher and i loved doing that that as well you know and people love seeing me teach and so i just kept going with that but that's really that's really it for travel media lab yes it's very much grounded in that practical knowledge, but it's also about giving you that new idea of what's possible in your life and giving you that idea that, you know, your creativity is valid and your voice is valid. If if you have this desire to share stories with the world, to share your gifts and your creativity with the world, you can and you should because the world will be better for it, you know? So that's kind of the the guiding philosophy, if you will, of what, what I do with Travel Media Lab. And it's been very rewarding for me because I love doing that work, you know. But in terms of what we do, we have a six-month group program where I take people, you know, from the beginning to pitching and to getting established in the industry. We also have a membership where it's kind of an ongoing support and an ongoing community for people uh, on this path. And I'm also doing individual mentorships as well throughout the year, like, during some times so i love this part of the job and yeah i'm very i'm very happy that covid happened and i could be able to do it and you can see it more about this on our website which is travelmedialab.com and you have um, a little discount for our n- listeners is that right yes actually if you guys go to travelmedialab.com slash esme you can see a special discount for uh, joining our programs. So check it out. Uh, you can see it all there on travelmedialab.com slash
0: People should definitely do that if you're ever interested in, you know, writing stories about the places you've been and really getting into that side of things. I think it's such a valuable offering that Yulia has. And I wish that I had been able to be a member when I was first starting out, but this is the first time I've ever met someone who's doing something like this. I think it's so valuable. And I can tell that you went to business school (laughs) because you seem like you've got so many different things that you're balancing and you have an entrepreneurial brain. I know you also have a group travel company called Nomad and Jewels, Mm -hmm. um, where you bring people to places that often get a bad rep, which I think is an interesting angle. Where did your passion for traveling to misunderstood locations come from?
1: That came from my trip to Jordan, my first trip to Jordan that I took in 2017. uh, That was one of the first trips that I started doing in the travel journalist capacity, you know, and I went to Jordan and I had an incredible time in the country. It's such a beautiful place. I fell in love with it. Now I keep coming back there. I'm actually going there next week again. But when I came back from Jordan, people started asking me all kinds of questions, including, was it safe there for you? Isn't there war there? Isn't there terrorists everywhere? Isn't there a conflict? How is the Middle East? You know. So in a kind of ironic twist, I now... Came face to face with those stereotypical notions of places that we have, that I, I first had when I went to Morocco. You know, and I realized that yes, of course, if you don't know anything about Jordan, if you've never read anything about Jordan, if all you see is the Middle East as kind of the tagline or the headline, this is the the number one stereotype that comes up to your mind. You know, uh, but of course, all the places in the world are much more layered and complex than that. So. That was my first kind of seed that started that idea, because at that point, I wrote articles about Jordan and I thought, you know, I can write articles all day long about how incredible Jordan is and trying to combat some of these stereotypes. But I realized that at the end of the day, the most powerful experience I can offer is actually taking people there and letting them see for themselves, you know, so that's kind of how that started. And also, I realized that I love that part of my job as well. I love bringing people on group trips and having those experiences. And this year, we're actually going to Kazakhstan, which is where I was born. Incredible! Um, yeah, I've, I've been wanting to go back to the place I was born. So I'm, I'm planning first ever trips to Kazakhstan this fall. So if you guys are interested, check out that website, nomadandjews.com, because we're, we're going to have some information on it soon about that trip.
0: So Yulia... I have to ask you, how do you think this trip to Morocco changed you?
1: That trip, first of all, has opened the door to my bravery and to my courage. You know, before that trip, I wasn't brave enough to do the the transition that I eventually did. Because I really was that stuck in that mindset, you know, that this is the only path and I have to keep going on that path. But going to Morocco and seeing all these beautiful places and having that night in the desert and that breakthrough and that crying and, you know, all of that it really opened something in me. It opened some channel where I could tap into now when I was afraid maybe, and and, and it would tell me, no, you're fine, keep going, you can do this, you know? So that was so, I don't know, maybe spiritual even in some way. It was so important for me. Then beyond that, it's what I talked about earlier with all those stereotypes and all those notions that I had about the place and how I exoticized it. And what I found in Morocco was actually very... You know, far, far from that exoticized version that I dreamt about And the real version was much more interesting and much more beautiful, you know. And I think it was the first step for me on this journey to de-orientalizing, you know, because orientalism is a huge problem. It still exists. And for me, this was the first step in (laughs) de-taking that away that I continue working on to to this day. And then, you know, that followed with trips to Jordan, to Oman, to Egypt, Saudi Arabia. You know, I, I really love the Middle East, North Africa region. I do a lot of work there. And that first trip was the impetus for me doing that work and now talking about this uh, in conversations like like the one that we're having today, you know, so I think that's, that's really important, especially as a travel journalist, you know, you, you have to have that awareness for sure.
0: You know, well, everything you've said, all the descriptions have been so beautifully evocative. It's been such a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Esme. It was
1: my pleasure. And I loved having this little memory trip back to Morocco. And thank you for the opportunity to relive it as well. Where thank can you. people find you on the internet? They can find me on Instagram. I'm at In Search of Perfect on Instagram. And of course, travelmedialab.com is the website. And the website for my group trips is nomadandjules.com.
0: And before you go, I'd love to do a quick fire round if you're open to it. Sounds good. Okay. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime?
1: Oh my God. Easy for me. It's a starry night in the desert.
0: <laughs> Perfect. What's the one thing you never, ever travel without?
1: My wipes, my baby wipes.
0: Oh, really? Baby wipes? <laughs> That's actually a good one.
1: Well, you know, before a brand manager at this corporation, I was a brand manager at Huggies, uh, which is a well-known childcare brand. And I was a brand manager in charge of Huggies baby wipes. So that stayed with me, even though I'm no longer a brand manager. It's very useful on the road. Very, very useful.
0: It really is. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do?
1: Oh my God, I'm just going to continue with this uh, theme right now because Wadiram is the place, my favorite place on Earth. It's the desert in the south of Jordan. I just had a piece about it uh, come out at Condé Traveler. But this is one of my absolutely most favorite places on Earth. So if I had a chance to go to Wadiram
0: right now, I would. What's an under-the-radar destination you would recommend to other travelers?
1: So I recently uh, took a trip to Sierra Leone which is uh, in West Africa, and it's a country that's been through a lot in recent years. Uh, They had a civil war in the 90s. They had an Ebola outbreak in 2015, I believe. But right now, they're really working hard to uh, increase awareness about the country and uh, have more travelers come and experience it. And... It's an incredible place, very beautiful, amazing coastline, beautiful food, beautiful people. The history is very important, actually, especially for the U.S., because it was the, the gateway for ships coming off of Africa and into the Americas. Really beautiful place that not, uh, I think, enough people know about it or, or are putting it into their travel plans. So, yeah, definitely check it out.
0: That's a great one. I know you're a photographer as well. So what's your top tip for taking a great photo while traveling?
1: Lights. Pay attention to the light. The light is what's going to make or break the photo. You have to start seeing the scenes that you move through in terms of light. How is the light? Is it soft? Is it harsh? Uh, is it diffused? Is it really on, on somebody's face? Start learning how the light works. And that's going to make sure that you have amazing photographs as well.
0: What have you been most surprised to learn about yourself through traveling?
1: How trusting I am of people and how I tend to see the best in them, you know, and it actually, knock on wood, reciprocates in me because I always meet just the most incredible people. And with very few exceptions, I very rarely have bad experiences when I travel. You know, <laughs> I believe the world is inherently good, even though there are a lot of challenges in it. But I think that helps me move through the world in a very kind of trusting and open way, which which helps when you travel, I think
0: Do you have a recommendation for a podcast, a show, or a book to stay entertained on a long journey?
1: Oh, my goodness, so many. You know, I love podcasts. I love podcasts so much. I'll say that. Far Flung is a great podcast from TED. It's kind of a mix of journalism and travel podcasts because they go to different countries around the world and they uncover very interesting stories in each of these places. So definitely check it out. On Being is one of my absolute favorites on living and spirituality and poetry and so many other different themes. And The One You Feed is the one I started re- listening to recently. And it's actually a podcast that inspired my latest story about Wadiram. So check
0: that one out as well. It's called The One You Feed. The One You Feed. Interesting. And finally, where is next on your bucket list?
1: So I don't necessarily have a bucket list, to be honest. I was just having this conversation with someone that, as a travel journalism, your threshold for incredible is so much higher it's going to sound probably horrible but it's true you know we like already this year i went to the arctic circle i went to sierra leone i went to the mediterranean coast of turkey doha qatar and i'm about to go to botswana you know so i don't so much go on bucket list rather i am looking for interesting stories that i want to pursue so, for example, I want to do a story in Kazakhstan, which is another reason why I'm coming back there, because we're going to this very deserted and unpopulated, strange region of Kazakhstan that nobody knows about. And I'm excited to go and see that region and take people there.
0: Oh, amazing. Great answer.
1: Yulia, thank you so much. Thank you, Esme. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full-time-travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review, and follow so we can keep this adventure going.